from John 8. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery. Now, in law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the, sand, on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of God. How many of you have ever been a suspect in a murder case? Believe it or not, I have. Very few people know this. It's true. Soon after I moved to Arizona from Indiana, I received a call from two detectives uh, who were from the, from the place where I attended graduate school and where I pastored a, uh, uh, a country church there. And they said, can, I come out, can we come out to talk to you? They asked if they could ask some questions about uh, a murder of a young woman who, who had been killed in a town where I lived before coming out here. Well, I said, of course, I'd be glad to help. And we set an appointment. And uh, I knew that situation very well. It was a horrific murder when a young girl engaged to be married was brutally murdered in her parents' home. I, along with the rest of our community, was just horrified and shocked. Their family were, was an active family in our church. I mean, they had aunts and uncles like typical country churches. You know, everybody's related to somebody. And this was the signal horrific event probably to date in the history of that church. I had conducted that funeral shortly before I moved to Arizona to begin a new ministry. Anyway, a few weeks after this conversation, I met with those detectives. They came over, they answered questions, and I was eager to do whatever I could to assist them because the case, uh, you know, by now I think about a year had gone by, actually, um, and no leads had been found or anything like that, and, you know, I was away from it. So I was eager to do whatever I could to help them, and, and we had a good conversation in my office, my church office. And after they, as they left, they asked me, they said, you know, you don't have to do this, but I wonder if you'd be willing to take a lie detector test a few weeks from now. Now, how many of you have ever taken a lie detector test? Okay, I don't know if your experience was like mine, but I will tell you what my experience was like. So I didn't think about it twice. I said, sure, whatever I can do to help. So I get a call a few weeks later from the Scottsdale Police Station. They, hook, they talk to me about the time to come in, and I show up. Um, and the t detective explained the procedure in this little room where I was. He said, I'm going to ask you a short series of questions. Respond with a simple yes or no. After I ask you those questions, I'll leave the room, I'll come back, and I'll do the same thing a second time, asking the same set of questions, and you just respond to them. So uh, that was pretty easy to follow, and so uh, the test was short, and it was disturbing to me to be asked these you know, direct questions, um, but it was relatively painless. He left the room, evaluated the results, returned for round two, which was exactly like round one. So far, so good. 
After we finished round two, he, re- he leaves again. He, he leaves to the other room. Um, and then when he comes back, he says, let's try this one more time. I'm hooked up to a machine. I've just answered questions about the murder of a young girl. I was told they'd do it twice. Now they're doing it a third time. How do you think I felt? <laughs> I get, my heart is jumping while I'm telling it to you now. I, they walk into this, he walks into the, uh, he, he, he uh, starts asking me these questions one more time, and he, I ask the questions, and he goes back into the room the other time, and I'm thinking, what in the world have I gotten into? <laughs> Did something get skewed up in the test results? Is there some sort of are they worried about something? And, you know, oh, man, I, why did I ever do this? I'm thinking, uh, why, why, how will I defend myself if somehow they think I'm actually, because now I'm realizing what's happened. This terrible murder happens, and about a month later, I move away. Still no sales. Oh, my goodness. I'm just, the, every horrific thought you can think of is, is, uh, is happening in my head. Never before that day or since that day have I had such a feeling of dread as I had sitting in that room, knowing that they had taken the test, which was going to take twice, now three times. Well, he walks back in after what seemed like an eternity. That's okay. Um, but was only a moment. He walks back in, and he says to me right away, you didn't kill that girl. <laughs> I said, I knew that, but I'm sure glad to hear you say it. Oh. And as I walked out of there, I said to myself, I will never, ever do that again. I will never put myself through that again. It is no fun to be accused of any kind of crime like that. I wasn't accused, but they were just trying to cross everything. And later, when we went to visit back home, the family came to me and she said, I am so sorry that they did that to you. Um, and uh, But they just... They just felt they had to, you know, which I understand. And even so, 20 years later, no suspect has ever been found in that um, terrible case. Um, Well, (laughs) I thought of that story as I was preparing to talk about this story, which is a very different kind of situation. This is a story about a woman on trial for her life. We're in John chapter 8. Kyle read for you that story. It's one of many stories in the Gospel of John that describe personal encounters with Jesus. We've looked at Jesus talking to spiritual seekers by the Sea of Galilee. We've looked at Jesus talking to a spiritual leader at night, on a moonlit night in Jerusalem. We've looked at Jesus talking to a woman by a well in Samaria. We've seen him talking to a lame man by the pool. And now we see him talking to this woman who's just been... taken out of the bedroom and standing straight in front of these people. So there are three things we want to see in this story. You can jot them down very simply and easily in this story. The first thing I want you to see is sinners on trial. Sinners on trial. Now, this is an obvious trial in this story. This is this woman. You know, the irony of this story is that she was probably set up. We don't know anything about her. We don't know whether this was a regular relationship. We don't know whether she was a prostitute. We don't know much of anything about her. All we know is that she was brought into this situation. And when she is accused, those who accuse her say, in the, literal, in the original language, say, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, in the very act. Does anything more need to be said? Now, the situation might have been unfair. Where was the man? His guilt and condemnation were equal to hers. But still, it could not be denied. This woman was guilty, and she was on trial for her life. You know, in some ways, her situation is like our own. We're guilty of things, too. 
maybe not of these kinds of things, but all of us are guilty underneath our lives. We have guilt. Forget about the standards of Scripture. Forget about the standards of society. What about our own personal standards? What about those things we believe that we want to do, but we don't actually do? We stand condemned by our own ideals. You may not adopt the standards of Scripture with your life, but you do have certain standards, and if you're very honest, we don't even meet our own standards. We want to be loving people. Instead, we become selfish people, don't we? We want to be honest people. We, instead, we cheat just a little, don't we? We want to put others first. Instead, we find ourselves putting ourselves first. We want to be generous people. Instead, we find ourselves greedy. Whether or not these things are publicly exposed in front of other people or not, the fact remains we, like this woman, are guilty, and we have no one to blame but ourselves. We stand like she stood before a holy God with nothing but rags and our shame to cover us. That's the truth about where we are. But that's where this story becomes so beautiful. For how does it end? It ends with this. The person who is guilty is not condemned. She's not, uh, uh, she, she is set free. She's not, throw, stones are not going to throw on her. We see it in this text when Jesus says to her, woman, where are your accusers? There are none, sir, she said. I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. In the first time she has spoken directly, she becomes a person in that moment. Despite her shame, despite her sin, despite her rags, the Son of God looks directly into her eyes and says, you know, I do not condemn you. That's such an important message for each of us here today. I know we don't all know one another, but you need to hear this. Jesus does not condemn you. Or I might say it personally. Jesus does not condemn me. Religious types might point their finger at what they think are your sins and your mistakes. They might, get, they might point their finger. They might shame you. They might guilt you. Um, bystanders might gawk at what they see in your life. But Jesus forgives you. In our enlightened days, we get upset because this woman was getting condemned. You know, oh, the reality is she was forgiven for her sin. She was forgiven. We, you see, and the thing that I like about this is that forgiveness came before behavior was changed. Notice what it said? Where are your, they're all gone away. I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. The rescue came before the life was changed. We often reverse that. We think, if I can get my life changed, then God will forgive me. That's the opposite of forgiveness. Forgiveness comes to guilty people. I must accept the reality of my guilt, but when I accept the reality of my guilt, Jesus gives me forgiveness, and then I go from there forgiven, and my life is changed, and my life becomes changed. Jesus says, I do not condemn you. We do not clean up our act in order to earn God's forgiveness. It's important to know that. You look at yourself someday, you wake up and you say, what did I just do? How could I have acted that way? I got to change. And we think somehow we're going to get, you know, on God's good graces by showing up at church or something or by putting an extra towel in, or the, in the plate or whatever. When in fact, we just can come to God just like this woman. See, the blessing for this woman is she came into Jesus' presence just like she was. She didn't intend to, but there she was. And because she came just like she was, with all of her guilt 
evident for everyone to see, but especially for herself. She could be forgiven. Oh, that's a beautiful story. I haven't seen the new movie, Les Miserables. Have any, any of you seen it? Uh, okay, well, you can, I, I, I'm speaking somewhat ignorantly about the new, the new movie, but of course it's a famous story and a famous play, but I couldn't help but think about that, that story as I was thinking about this message, because in that story, there is a man named Jean Valjean. Have I said it right? Yeah. And early on, he is deeply poor. He steals a loaf of bread. He spends 19 years or something like that in prison, as I recall. And then he gets out, and by now he's kind of a hardened, he's selfish. He's, 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 he, you know, he's, a, he's living a very interior-focused life. Um, and he gets taken in by a priest. And, um, and while he's there, as you may well know, he steals some silverware. A valued silver. About the only thing of value that priest had, he steals it. And of course, he is caught early in the movie, and he's brought back to the priest. And the and the priest. It's just a powerful. I assume it's that way in the movie, but it's powerful in the story. Um, he's brought back to the priest, <laughs> red-handed, with the the silverware. And so, and the priest, who of course is surprised that he's been robbed after having provided a night to stay. In a very poignant moment, he says. Um, you didn't take the candlesticks. You were supposed to take the candlesticks, too. Why did you leave the candlesticks? <laughs> and the guy takes the silverware and the candlesticks. He's r- caught red-handed and receives forgiveness. And it's the signature moment early on in that story when Jean Valjean decides that for the rest of his life, he will try to live in honor and to live worthily for their forgiveness, which has been granted to him freely. That's the story about Jesus. That's the story about this woman. And that's our story, too. So long as we are unable to admit to ourselves that we're guilty, we can never receive forgiveness. So long as we think that somehow we can repay the debt that we have done by somehow being, you know, uh, earning our way back into God's good graces, we will never understand forgiveness. So the sinners are on trial, yes. Oh, but it's beautiful because Jesus offers forgiveness to those who don't deserve it. That's the first trial that we see. There's a second trial, though, and for lack of a better idea, I call it this, religion on trial. Religion on trial. We could say legalism or moralism. These are religious people because the odd thing about this is that these these religious people these religious people come in self-righteous. They come, take a look at this woman. And what happens in the midst of that conversation? Who is really put on trial? Did you catch it in the story? Jesus is writing, I could, man, how many preachers can do this? <laughs> um, I'm writing in the sand. We don't know what he wrote. You know, he didn't have a chalkboard, didn't have a PowerPoint, didn't have a video, you know, but, or maybe he's just coloring or maybe he's ignoring them. We don't know. But we know he did it persistently. He doesn't even respond to them. They continue to ask them. And then he says, let the one who was out without sin cast the first stone. And immediately, starting with the wiser, the older and wiser, they back away. While they have to acknowledge the guilt of this woman, they realize that they are in no position to execute judgment against that woman. Because for all we know, they were complicit in her crime. But even if they weren't, they all know they all knew that while the, condem- the law could condemn, it could never forgive. And what we need is not more rules, but more forgiveness. 
Oh, what a beautiful thing in this. Are those people in that story really interested in justice? No, they're trying to trap Jesus. Their attitudes are all wrong. They're religious people. Now, we can all feel good about blaming that guilty, sinful woman, right, for her bad habits and attitudes, right? Although, if we're honest, we are in that place too. But what about these religious people who look down their nose at people who don't have it quite together like them? who don't, don't speak the way that they speak, who don't follow the rules that they follow. You know, um, that's, who this is, that's who this story is challenging as well. These men are being put on trial. They didn't care about the woman. They didn't care a bit. Um, and they were just trying to trap Jesus because if he condemned the woman, he's no longer going to be popular with the people. But if he excused the woman, he's violating the law of Moses, and therefore they can begin to condemn, they can begin to condemn him. You see, this is the problem of of religion and moralism, it, it, it deludes us into thinking that somehow by our own efforts, we can earn a right standing before God. And this is the sinister reality of religion, and it is not the gospel of Jesus. This is what they admit. They were so intent on following the law that they missed the spirit of the law. What we do is we make all these rules so we can determine who's in and who's out. So I don't. So I can be judgmental towards other people because they don't re, uh, meet up to our standards. You see, religion teaches us that our good behavior puts us in a right relationship with God, but that's not what religion. Um, really should be doing. Religion says to us, change your ways and God will forgive you. But Jesus says, I forgive you. Now go change your ways. You see the difference? Religion says, you better measure up or God's going to condemn you. Jesus says, you can't measure up. Admit it and I'll forgive you. Religion says, here's what you must do to get right with God. Jesus says, here's what I've done to make you right with God. Religion tells me what I must do in order to be received by God. Jesus tells me what he has done in order to pave the way for God. The gospel is good news, not good ethics. It's good news about something that has happened, that a baby was born and he was God, that he lived his life and died and died for us and rose from the dead. And this is news about what God has done. That's what Jesus provides. We see, the gospel of Jesus teaches us that a right relationship with God is a gift of grace, not a reward of merit. And that's what these religious types had thought. And that's where a lot of us are. You know, we're good, upstanding, middle-class Americans. You know, we don't do all the bad stuff. We can be very self-righteous as we look at people who are different than us. We don't realize that we too are in need of God's grace. Yes, this woman was guilty to be sure, but these men's moral rectitude had caused them to become hypocrites. And Jesus had a lot more trouble with hypocrites than he did with sinners. Have you noticed that? He's always angry with the religious types and he's always accepting towards the sinful types. He had exactly opposite to the way they thought things should be done. Yes, she was guilty, but so were they. She may have been an adulterer, but they were hypocrites. She at least knew she needed mercy, but these people hadn't seen it until Jesus says, okay, the guy with the, un, without sin, let him throw the first stone. Then they began to see it, you see. He shows the hypocrisy of the accusers, but he also shows the limitations of the law. If the law is our standard, we're all guilty. None of us keeps it perfectly. We've all broken the first commandment, <laughs> if nothing else. 
You shall have no other gods before me. Every time you make a decision to do your own thing instead of God's thing, you break the first commandment. You put yourself as God in the place of God. The law can only condemn, really. Uh, Jesus shows that there's limitations to the law, and that is the point. What we need is not another better, more enlightened system of judgment. We need forgiveness for every one of us, the sinner and the religious type. We're all guilty. Ultimately, religion only condemns. It cannot forgive, or it gives us a feeling of superiority to those who aren't as quite as good as us. You see, what we need is forgiveness. Many of us are like the guys in this story. Our good behavior, our high standards bind us to our own need for grace. We need it just as much as the sinner in the bedroom. We need it just as much as the drunk on the street. We need it just as much as the murderer on death row. We need it just as much as the celebrity on this silver screen or the guy driving the Bentley or the politician in Washington, D.C. Every time you get judgmental and critical, be careful because you need grace too. Jesus said to them, and he says to us, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. With these brilliant words, Jesus tore down their house of religion and those who were hiding behind it. You know, there's a second person in Les Miserables. I don't know how to say his name. It's Javert. Is that how you say it? J- J- Inspector Javert? Javert, thank you. Good. Audience participation. Javert. Javert is a very different person. He represents the moralist, the religious guy in this story. He's the guy who spends his whole career trying to bring Valjean to justice, essentially. But what happened to Javert is that he, too, had been shown mercy once, if not more, you know. He had a dub- he is the child of gypsies, as I recall in, in the book, and uh, he was embarrassed about his upbringing, and he, he had a high regard for the law, for the morality of the law, and ultimately, late in this, later in this story, he is actually captured or given, there's an opportunity when Jean Valjean is given the opportunity to execute Javert, right? Am I getting this right? He, given the opportunity to execute. So he goes off by himself, and, and, and he fakes like he executes the guy. He shoots, for what, shoots and, and, and tries to kill him and sets him free. And now Javert, who was trying to live by justice his whole life, now has received mercy. You see, his house was built on moral rectitude, you know. And when he received mercy, he couldn't stand it. And so what did he do? He commits suicide in this story. See, the more difficult thing in these stories is not so much the change of life in the woman, but the change of life in the religious people. You see, religion is a subtle and sinister force in our lives. Either we fulfill it and become prideful and critical towards others, or we are crushed underneath it and become despairing and cynical. We need a way out. Thankfully, we have one because there's a third person on trial, Jesus on trial. In fact, the story around this story is not just that the woman is being tried and not that Jesus now turns it on the men, but what, who are they really trying? They could care less about the woman. They're putting him on trial. They want him to put himself in a bad situation. They want him to say something that either lo- makes him lose his popularity or makes him uh, 
be guilty of, of breaking the law. We might be surprised, but yes, it's not the woman, it's Jesus who is on trial ultimately. Um, the major trial is not of the guilty woman or the guilty hypocrites. Jesus is the one who is on trial. You see, the concern in this story was not just for justice to be done or even for the law to be upheld, but it was really, really this. Let's find a way to trap the teacher. Let's find a way to trap the teacher. And the irony, as we've already seen in this story, is that Jesus doesn't do either of the things they expect. He doesn't put away the law. He doesn't uh, condemn her by the law. He shows the limitations of the religionists and of the, uh, uh, the law itself, okay? Uh, in fact, uh, but there is a deeper truth in this story, and it's found in this lesson that I close with as we talk, think about this. Even though Jesus is the only guiltless person in this whole story, the religious guys are not guiltless. The woman is not guiltless. There's only one guiltless person. Jesus, the only guiltless person in this story, but in just a few months or weeks after this dramatic confrontation, what happens to Jesus? Jesus, the guiltless one, lays down his life for the guilty. He is sacrificed on a cross on a hill outside of Jerusalem on the Passover weekend, the time when the lamb would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. Jesus was sacrificed. Jesus laid down his life, the guiltless for the guilty, the guileless for the hypocrite. He will take the penalty that the woman deserved for her sin, and he will die. He will take the penalty that the, condemn, the, the people who were condemning, he will receive the condemnation. He will even, be die, he will even die for their sin of uh, of self-righteousness. In fact, what does Jesus say on the hanging from that cross? Father, forgive them. So Jesus, who had forgiven the woman as she stood before him, now looks over all of humanity, Roman soldiers, revilers, thieves on his side, across the way to Pilate, the religious leaders, John, the disciple, others around, and he says, Father, forgive them. Yes, Jesus was on trial. He was not guilty, but he laid down his life on behalf of those who deserve to die. You know, it's interesting. John himself talks about this later in this book. In the 11th chapter, the high priest said this when they're talking about Jesus. He said in chapter 11 and verse 50 and following, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And John goes on to say, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Yeah, that means you and me, that he dies for us. And the apostle Paul, sometime later, wrote in these famous words in the book of Romans, verse 6 of chapter 5, for while we were still weak, weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely will one die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here, Jesus, or Paul is letting us know that Jesus' death was on behalf of the guilty. And I thought about that as I was thinking about sitting there in that lie detector room I cared about Sherry. She was in my youth group. Her family was the family of our church. 
and her life was snuffed out by probably a drifter who stopped in. Um, and while I was sitting there in that room, can you even imagine me wanting to die so that the guy who killed Sherry could go free? It's, it's almost obscene. Did you hear what I said? Can you imagine me wanting to give my life so that the guy that brutally murdered someone in our youth group could go free? It's obscene. And yet, that's what Jesus has done for us. He has given his life for us. You know, there's a, a story by a famous preacher some time ago uh, named Dr. Martin Lord Joyce, and he talked about, let's say you're going away from your house uh, for a few days, and you've got family, company staying with you, and you come, you come in to see to the, to the house. And when you get back, the, the person says to you, I paid a bill for you while you were gone. What do you say when that person says to you, I paid a bill for you? You don't know what to say unless you know what the bill was. If there was a postage due on a stamp, well, thanks. If it's the whole mortgage on your house, <laughs> thank you. If it's, you don't know how to say thank you unless you know what was forgiven and paid. And that's a problem with a lot of us. Jesus paid a bill for us, and it was huge. It was huge. We should be thankful. We should be thankful. Jesus paid our debt, and it wasn't just postage due. It was the debt of humanity. Yes, Jesus, though he was the only sinless one in that story, died for the sins of all of us. You know, there's a third guy in the um, Les Miserables, and he's the Bishop Muriel. He's the guy who gave up the candlesticks. He's the guy who sacrificed so that a convicted criminal who had just stolen from him could go free. And there's a picture of Jesus in that for us. So as we close our time together this morning, I want to just remind you, if you find yourself uh, you know, sort of drowning in the, your own sin, whatever it is, whatever it is that's got you, Jesus forgives you. Receive it. Receive it like Jean Valjean did. Or if you're one of these good, upstanding people, can you admit how judgmental maybe you've become and realize that you are as in need of forgiveness? We all are as Jesus, as, 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 as those religious people were. And remember that Jesus loves us so much that he gave his life so that we could have the forgiveness that he offers to us. What a great, great story that we can remember this woman as she goes out realizing she's been given a brand new life and so have you and i as we go from here we've been given we've been forgiven live like jean valjean thankful for a gift you didn't deserve humble enough to receive it and sharing that kind of forgiving love with a world that is far too judgmental and critical we're going to observe the Lord's Supper in a moment. And it will be an opportunity for any of you who want to share in remembering what it cost Jesus to secure your forgiveness. I'm going to say a prayer before we do that. Father, oh my goodness.
this is just such a great story in the Bible, this story about this woman and these religious people and Jesus, who though he was sinless, forgave and died for forgiveness for all of us. I pray that each of us, whether we've known this story for a long time or just heard it today, would be led to worship again for the great gift you've given to us. And if there are any among us who have never responded to this story, may this be the time when they can say, I, <laughs> I will receive what you offer to me, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.